This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 170, and today I sat down with Bruce Smith, the founder and CEO of Hydro. Hydro is the leading at-home connected rowing brand that brings the on-water experience of rowing straight to your home. Bruce shares his story from growing up in Canada with a mother who suffered from schizophrenia to leaving the house when he was in 12th grade, to breaking into hotels and churches to practice piano, to attending McGill University where he painted houses to pay for college and discovered his passion for rowing. Following a successful career as a rowing coach and inspired by Peloton's success, Bruce launched Hydro in 2018. We talk about the importance of warm intros the pros and cons of working with bankers, and why it's important to find investors that will be able to provide follow-on funding as the company grows. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Bruce. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story in building Hydro. How are you? It's good to see you again. Likewise, great to see you. Sunny LA. I know. We met just a few weeks ago in person at the Founder Made Direct-to-Consumer Executive Summit where uh, we were on a founders panel and I was moderating. That was fun. Did you have fun? Yeah, it was great. I love hearing founder stories. When I'm invited, I try and always say yes, because it's just, there's so much to learn. And nobody tells, like, it's hard to get people to tell the truth about what really happens in business, especially in like startups. Yeah, I love it. I love that stuff. So you're ready to tell the truth today. I will do my best. (laughs) I will do my best to tell at least my version of the truth in a postmodern world. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to hear it. And please don't hold back. I try to do this podcast for that reason. I hope that people come and be as vulnerable as possible. I always try to ask about the challenges so that this doesn't become a highlight reel. There's plenty of those all over the internet and we just don't need more of that. I think entrepreneurship is really hard. So highlighting that is important. It's really hard, but it's really satisfying. I honestly, I think it's the most fun thing you can do. It's like creating art. It's worth the trouble. It's like creating art and then sharing it with the world. And when people love it, it feels so good. There's no feeling that compares. Well, let's hear how you built Hydro. Starting early, early days, what kind of kid were you growing up? Where did you grow up? What was the dynamics of your family? Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Canadian. I think, you know, it's sort of like a punchline, but it's true. People in Canada are nicer. It's true. I agree with it. I know it's actually, Yeah. yeah. 
That's kind of funny. I grew up like way, way east. So in New Brunswick in Canada, in a very small place called Fredericton, New Brunswick. And then when I was in grade seven, my parents moved out to a place called Prince William, which was like our nearest neighbor was about a mile away. And it was just, it was like pretty radically isolated. So I read a ton of books and I spent a ton of time outside and I really, really wanted to move out of my parents' house. I did not like it there. And so I, I moved out of my house when I was still in high school, which was a little bit unusual. But where did you go to live? And first off, I want to know, did you have siblings? What did your parents do? And then why did you yeah. move out? My parents were, they tried really hard. My dad's a lawyer. My mom's a pharmacist. Actually, I just found out my mom was valedictorian of her class, which is Oh, cool. wow. I had, I had no idea, which I think is also kind of like hilarious. Yeah, they moved deep into the country. And I had a couple of brothers who were a lot older, but they were long gone by the time I was in high school. So in the summertime, I just like I just left. I like I painted houses and I made my own money. And for the school year, my last school year in Fredericton, I shared an apartment with my older brother Mac. But I had to like he didn't have any money either. So I had to make my own money and pay my way. And my I think like I can't really remember. I think my parents gave me a few bucks. I had to pay for food. I had to go grocery shopping. And it also, like, if you're in grade 12 and you have your own apartment and you don't really have to go to school, but you choose to, it gives you this halo in high school. So I had, like, a pretty magical grade 12. Because everybody came to your house for the party, right? It was amazing. It was just fantastic. <laughs> you're like, party yeah. at my house, was, guys. Yes. No parents. Totally. Like, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. You so you were it, so. Mr. Popular, basically, in 12th grade. Through no fault of my own. It was, like, circumstantial. <laughs> but yes. Right. That's hilarious. So I'm curious. So you kind of grew up almost as an only child because you were alone in the house, right? You were the only kid. So because all the older brothers, they were all older and out of the house. So you're alone. It sounds like probably a lot. It sounds like you read a lot, played outside. But why did you want to move out so early in grade 12? It just, it was not, I just wasn't comfortable. Why? I played the piano a lot too. It just was not a comfortable home. And I didn't understand until much later in life, like what made it so uncomfortable. But my parents were just, you know, they were committed to a way of life that I didn't really vibe with. And they were super formal and kind of Victorian. And it didn't help that my mom was schizophrenic. So, you know, she's medicated and super functional and, and really like she was valedictorian. She really was like kind of an amazing human, but it was not comfortable as a teenager to be there. And, mm. you know, I was determined to make my own way. So I, I just did. That's wild. Schizophrenia. I don't know very much about it. I think, is that the disease where you see or hear people or things? People confuse it a lot with multiple personality disorder, which it is not. So my mom was bipolar and schizophrenic. And it's pretty, you know, it's not uncommon. Schizophrenics in general have auditory hallucinations. My mom's case was pretty severe. So she also had visual hallucinations. And there's a very effective drug, lithium. And Lithium puts the world at a distance and it makes you functional in the world and like less dangerous to yourself and others. But it's also hard to manage the dosage and it's kind of a lifelong thing. But the outlook for schizophrenics in general, like they live a long, productive life generally if they're medicated. And actually, my mom got a different psychiatrist later in her life and updated her medications. And, you know, she lived a long and really productive life. So overall, it was just, I was just really determined, like I wanted to do things my way. I'm not sure if like that's a healthy impulse or not, but that was like my motivating factor. Like I got my driver's license the day that I turned 16 and I got in the car and I drove away and I basically never went back. <laughs> that's like, wild. I was, like, I was out. Yeah. When you say you wanted to do things your way, 
What were some of the things that you felt like you weren't able to have your way? There were some funny rules at home, like classical music only and no jeans. It was like my family was very formal. Like, yeah. you know, silver service and all that stuff. So it was, I really, I wanted to be like a teenager with friends and girlfriends and running around yeah. and going to parties and all that stuff. So it was just that lifestyle was way more convenient away from my parents. Right. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Totally. I found, or I, sometimes I feel like when people, when kids grow up in a very confined or lots of rules, they almost rebound like the total opposite. Did you do that for a little bit and totally go rebellious and off the deep end and have to reel back? Or was it like an easier kind of shift? I totally was fully off the deep end. The catch was that I didn't have any money. Uh, And so I had to work. And so work really was my therapy. So you had to kind of like be responsible at the same time in order to even have that lifestyle. So it was kind of came with it. Yeah. And that was fortunate. I think if I'd had more money, it would have just been more problems. So, in 12th grade, what you're like 16, 17 years old, leaving the house Mm -hmm. is that the age? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's really early. And like you said, you're kind of like one of the only, I guess, kids in the 12th grade that were living on their own. So, party at your house, but also. I don't know how I got away with it, honestly. Like the teachers at my school, it was a really big school, Fredericton Regional High School in Fredericton, New Brunswick. So 3,000 kids. And there were two or three teachers who were really kind to me, like really, really nice. And I think that they were like, should we get child services involved? You know, I got good grades and I skipped a lot of classes, but I still got good grades. And they were like, that's fine. You know, I played in the jazz band. I played piano. I thought I was going to be a pianist for my life. Like that was my sort of initial ambition. So you know, I practiced at school a lot. And so people kind of left me alone. And I worked like a dog, like I worked in a pizza joint, and I painted houses. And so it's like going to school, partying a lot, mm-hmm. making money all the time. I was very busy. It was like really fun. So looking back, do you think someone should have called child services and, and done something about <laughs> no, it? Like looking back? No. Or are you just like glad it kind of flew under the yeah. radar? No, no, it totally worked. It, it was yeah. it was excellent. Yeah. The system failed in exactly the right ways. Yeah. And so you wanted to be a pianist. It sounds like that was your dream job. Yeah. It's a small town. It was pretty easy to be the best kid in town. It's fortunate. Like I realized I kind of came to my senses maybe. And also like I didn't have a piano where I lived. So I had to like steal piano. So I had this whole routine. I would break into the local hotel. The hotels have like pianos in the conference room. And I would pretend to be a guest and go in and use the piano. And there was a church where I could go in practice. And then the the local college had a few pianos that I could break in and use and just avoid the security guards. But it wasn't really, I was not regimented enough to really make it. And truthfully, I wasn't that good. I was like, okay. But you loved it. And you couldn't afford to have one at your own place. So you just went where they were to practice. So what kind of jobs did you have early on? What were some of those early jobs? And then what kind of happened from there with college? Yeah. So I applied to McGill because it had a one-page application and no essay requirement. And that was the only school I applied to. (laughs) I just, I got in. So I went to McGill. That was, again, like one of those better lucky than good situations. I remember very distinctly walking into the guidance counselor's office and being like, wait, these applications are really long. And McGill is in Montreal. So it's one page. I will send that in. So I I did. And I I got an acceptance letter back. Nice. (laughs) So yeah, which was just like really different from what my kids went through to get into college. So and then I, you know, I really, I, I painted houses a lot, super lucrative and not the healthiest activity, but I would, you know, every summer I'd buy a car for like the least amount possible. I think the cheapest car I ever bought was 20 bucks from a friend. And the most expensive was like 
$400 from one of my teachers at school, like a really, really crappy car, you know, danger, to the point of like danger. And then come up a couple ladders and just knock on doors. I would not have any work. And on Saturday morning, I would put my painting clothes on and I would just go knock on people's doors. And to see if they needed a I, room painted or something. My whole stick was like, hi, my name is Bruce Smith. Painting my way through college. I have to pay for college. I, you know, I have good experience. I've been painting for three years or whatever. Even if you're just thinking about having some work done, you know, I'd be happy to give you an estimate so you can do some planning. And five people would swear at you. Three people would slam the door. One person would be like, hmm. And then the 10th person would be like, yeah, okay, I'll, you can give me an estimate. And I would just do that until I had enough work for the next week. It was brutal. But really good sales training. I mean, that's like <laughs> yes. it's like bringing out the inner salesperson yeah. and really trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. It's very personal. I really do believe poverty is like just an amazing motivator. And there was a summer when I didn't have enough food. I couldn't afford gas for my car. So that was like a chicken egg situation. So I had to be really thoughtful about how much gas I was buying versus how much food I was buying. And I didn't have a place to live. So I was kind of like couch surfing and uh, the local colleges would have empty dorms. And so I could break in there and sleep in them. Like it was a little bit extreme, like looking back, like I'm like, yeah. hmm, I'm glad I got through all that stuff, but it was highly motivating. And ultimately I had a couple summers towards the end where I would make like 20 or $25,000 for the summer. And that was like plenty to live on. It was great. Yeah. And pay for school and... Yeah. And it's Canada. So tuition in Canada, you can totally pay your oh, money through school. Right. So I, I got out of college. Like, <laughs> I know, I know. Amazing. Right. But amazing. no debt. I wasn't living large by any means. And I looked with some envy on my friends who had trips and money for drinks on Saturday night and stuff like that. But it was just excellent experience. I really, I enjoy working hard. I still have a hard time paying painters myself because I know just how much money they're making. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, Amazing. So you graduated from McGill University with a degree in English literature and theory. What did you think you wanted to do with that? And what did you end up doing with it, if anything? So I think a lot of people in college go through this where like you're in the fishbowl and I got sucked in. I, I studied for my master's degree for a couple of years and I thought I wanted to be a professor and I thought it would be so much fun and I could like change the world from college. And then I wrote this paper about professional advancement in English departments. And I did a bunch of research around it and how you get promoted. And I realized that it was just like you end up fighting like a corner grad for a grant to go study some original text in London for the summer. And you think that that's a big win and you just got like $14,000. I was so disillusioned. And then I looked at the numbers of people who would read your work, you know, like, so if you're somebody like you write the anxiety of influence by Harold Bloom, like a lot of people read your book, but by a lot, we're talking like 15,000. <laughs> and he's like the most famous, you know, and if you're like a normal scholar, like the people that I really loved studying with at McGill, like they would publish their book, and they would sell like two or 300 copies. And they would work for two or three years, like cornered rats on these books. And they were really good you know, about John Milton and like some aspect of his text or whatever, whatever your flavor was. And then you would hope that five people responded to you. And it just seemed like not the pointy end of the stick. So I finished my master's thesis and I gave it to my professor. I had been through like various convolutions and evolutions. And he told me that it was done and I needed to complete the bibliography. And I told him, 
I was not going to finish it. And I left and I never got my master's degree because oh I was God. that stupid. <laughs> it was like, well, I was like literally that stupid. What is it that stupid? Do you regret it? Yeah, I regret it. I really? would like to have a master's by you yeah. need your master's. Right. I know, no, here I am. It yeah. all's well, it ends well, but it was really dumb. Like I did all the work. I should have just got well, You mean little, maybe just you know, like letters. you paid for it. I mean, might as well have gotten the badge. Not even paid. Like, no, because like at that point they thought that I was pretty smart and they were giving me a little bit of money to study. So it was more that I I was just like so disillusioned and like hurt by the institution. And I it was dumb. So it was like an was emotional just a bit naive. decision. Maybe. Yeah. It's like you led yeah. with emotion. Yeah. Isn't it annoying when those things happen? <laughs> Well, no, and it would have been so much smarter to just be like, hey, here's like, literally, it was two hours work. And so about three years later, I came to my senses. And I was like, Oh, can I go get my master's degree? And and I went back and there's like a long story involving a budgie bird and a professor and um, net net, they were like, No, you'd have to start over. And I was like, Okay, I'm not doing that. What? <laughs> so, really? You'd have to start yeah. all over? Yeah. And they were right. They were absolutely right. It was a lesson well learned. If you put in that kind of work, you definitely want to think carefully. And there's an element of being successful where you must accept that the power of the man is real and you got to adapt and bend a little bit if you're going to be successful. I didn't know that when I was 23 years old. Yeah. I was trying to prove them all wrong. It turned, <laughs> they were right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, emotions are tough to ignore when you're like yes. angry or, yeah. I think that happens to everybody. We've made, I think we've all made like emotional decisions. And we're like, we look back and say, oh, really wish I didn't get so emotional about that. You know, it, it could have paid yeah. off way better if I would have just did it. <laughs> I had all these friends in college who were like super mature and they just, and they were off and they were doing investment banking and crushing it. And there I was out on my ass, like with nothing. It was yeah. Like, yeah, not that great. So what did you end up doing? So you didn't get your master's, so, right? Yeah, no, I didn't get my master's. So I moved to Chicago. I had a girlfriend who moved to Chicago and I started doing kind of odd jobs and like bits and bobs, like painting houses. And I, I needed a green card. So I ended up getting married to an American and getting a green card. And then I had kind of like this unique interlude where the woman that I stayed married to had quite a bit of money. She was wealthy. And so I had like this 12-year period where I, I was an entrepreneur, but I also had some financial backing. So that was like a new experience. That was pretty crazy. And so, you know, I worked in some real estate deals and flipped some houses before that was really a thing. And I did a dot-com startup that was neither successful nor unsuccessful. It was called QuidFit. It was a marketplace for PhD students. And that's when I got sucked into this rowing coaching thing. And so I was, I was working quite a bit, but then I was also coaching like 25 or 30 hours a week. And that was in Chicago. And I built a couple of boathouses in Chicago on the Chicago River. Obviously, not by myself, like with a community of people. And they're still there. And the Chicago River now has like tons of rowers on it, which is really cool. Actually, Jeannie, the most recent or second most recent boathouse built in Chicago is designed by Jeannie Gang, who's a really famous architect. She just did the Natural Science Museum in New York City. So it was like a really, it was really, really fun. And I had this chance to kind of figure out how the United States works. It's really, you know, in Canada, it's like a very small group of people and super conservative and not a lot of movement. And in the United States, like especially in Chicago, it is a meritocracy. And if you have good ideas, people embrace you with open arms. And so within a couple of years of getting there, like I could make a phone call and the mayor's office would be like, yes, you should do this event or we agree or we don't, you know, like you could get stuff done in a way that you just can't do in Canada. And it was, it was really exciting. 
So you got into coaching rowing. How? I skipped over the rowing part of school. So while I was at school, I kind of replaced playing the piano with rowing. They're remarkably, in a lot of ways, they're incredibly similar. <laughs> really? How? They are both repetitive, deeply repetitive. And when you're practicing the piano, like I play the same four bars, you don't want to know how many times to try to get it right. Mm -hmm. And rowing, it's a little bit simpler, but you're also using your whole body and you're doing the same stroke every single time and it's repetitive and you're trying to get it right. You get thousands of at-bats like trying to get it right every single time. And that's very similar too. Yeah. Interesting. So you started rowing in college and that's kind of where you fell in love with rowing and then began coaching. I would say my wife, my woman that I'm married to now says, I don't know if it'd be love. It's more like a compulsion, but yeah. I got involved, I kind of got sucked in in my like second year of college. And then I just rode a lot and I tried really hard to make the national team. And I, those three, you could literally take the time block that I spent, you know, in, the, in front of the piano and just replace it with rowing in college. Yeah. And so I rode, you know, three or four hours a day and wasn't good enough to make the national team, but I did find that I really, really loved being involved in the community. And when I moved to Chicago, I thought that I would keep training, but I got involved in coaching instead. That was like a switch where, When you're coaching somebody, especially at the elite level, you get this kind of human connection that is hard to duplicate in life because it's there's some structure to it, but you're both really dedicated to this goal and and it's very, very focused. And there's a lot of mind-body connection work that you're doing. And it's it's like a mental puzzle with people. It's really fun. And now we're gonna take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about, but Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You will be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Mind-body connection. I don't know anything about rowing, to be honest. Uh, I've got a cousin that does really great in rowing at college, and i that's yeah. about all I know. So yeah. when you say mind-body connection, there's a mind-body connection, I think, in all sports. So I'm just curious, I guess, can you kind of talk more about the mind-body connection in rowing and kind of how you went from coaching to starting hydro? So... The thing with rowing is that, so all sports have flow, like, and it takes, people talk about 10,000 hours, whatever. Phil Jackson flow, finding like that perfect rhythm on the court, time stops. And it relates directly to the people's, depending on your concepts of how art works, like, you know, the experience of art is transcendent. It takes you out of time. You experience this moment of, call it flow. With rowing, you get there much faster because you're moving in perfect synchronicity with another human being and you're doing all of the exact same things with your body that the person in front of you and the person behind you are doing. You're trying to anyway. And when you feel that moment of synchronicity, it is wildly addictive. And there's some really interesting brain research from MIT 
There's a couple good meta studies. Human beings are hardwired to love synchronicity. And when you step back for a minute, it's like the most obvious thing. It's like the nose on your face. Why do armies march together? It is for that exact same reason. If you're going to go confront an enemy, you feel so much more powerful if you march into war together. And rowing is that experience, but it's elevated because you're on wheels. Your only attachment is to this incredibly fragile boat. So you're, when you think of people's momentum in the center of their body, you're moving with the center of their body. And you feel every time you get that rhythm just right. It is really an intoxicating feeling. And rowers don't have language to talk about this. And human beings generally, our language is pretty squishy around ideas like this. But as a coach, I had to like figure out how to express that and capture it and teach it. And it's one of the reasons that rowers are such rabid freaks. You know, if you talk to your cousin who's doing well, like, why do they get up early? Yeah, it's insanely early. It's like five (laughs) in the morning or something. And I'm like, I don't know why you do this. What's going on? Like, so you're 19 years old and you're getting up at 4.30 to make the bus and you kill yourself. You will not be late. I coached high school for a little while and the parents would come up to me and they'd be like, what did you do to my child? I could not get them out of bed until like one in the afternoon. And they're literally dragging me down to the car at 4.30 in the morning to make sure that they're not late to keep leave their team hanging. It's like they had a personality transplant. So there's this thing about rowing that achieves that synchronicity and teaching that is it's a really fun thing. It's fun to experience with other people. And I got, as I moved along in, in the sport, I, I started coaching up higher and higher levels. So I coached high school kids and then I coached masters. And then I coached at Dartmouth college for a couple of years. Pretty much every rowing coach in the world has coached at Dartmouth college for like a year or two. And then I started taking teams to cruise to trials, to U.S. trials. And then we started winning trials. So I've, I've won trials in the United States 10 times and I've been to the world championships for the United States 10 times as a coach. My gosh. It's really, really fun and don't dope. And you can't really cheat in rowing. Like it's hard to cheat. So no doping. Other than that, anything you can do with your life, your personality, your soul, whatever it is, you will do anything to win and you've got 10 years to do it. What a project. It's very, very, very engaging. That's wild. So you went to the world championships as a coach 10 times with Mm -hmm. your teams? I mean, it sounds better than it is, but... How many out of 10 won? So I am super grateful that we earned one medal out of those 10 trips to the world championships. And so there are two ways. It's a longer story than this podcast warrants or really it's just a long story. But the way that you make the team in the United States, you can be in an Olympic class boat and be selected and hired by the national governing body. And then there's another class of boat that goes through trials. And so I was in that sort of secondary class. So I was definitely a national team coach, but I wasn't in that Olympic class. I'm like a, I'm one of the bananas in the bunch, but I'm not top banana (laughs) as a coach. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you're in the top bananas on my podcast because (laughs) (laughs) we haven't had any world champion coaches yet. So congrats on winning the medal and having that awesome experience. That sounds like such an incredible opportunity and very cool experience to have. So how did you come up with the idea for Hydro? I feel like I might know this, it coming, but let's hear, you know, where were you and what was the idea? Yeah. So Peloton is an amazing company and I'm a huge fan. They started in 2012. I was working at a place called Community Rowing, which is a nonprofit that serves people from all different walks of life to help them get on the water and experience the flow and joy of being in a community and and rowing out on the water. I know, I think everybody knows at this point that there's this like huge shift 
in indoor activities and modalities and rowing is growing. Like it's one of those things, you know, CrossFit and Orange Theory and all of these people are promoting rowing as the best exercise. So Peloton started with a bike, but I knew that eventually they would move to rowing. And I wanted to make sure that the experience that people have on rowing machines is actually connected to at least like a fraction of the magic that happens out in the water. And I've met John Foley a few times and he came to Hydro and and I showed him our rowing machine and stuff. And I knew that if Peloton brought this idea into the marketplace, that it would be like a dance party, that they're not about rowing, they're not about biking, they're about a dance party. And I wanted to make sure that the company that owns rowing in the world and like this superlative modality for exercise actually connects the rowing machine to what happens in the world and have some of that magic come into millions of people's lives, not just the few people who get to get out on the water. That was the motivation. And, and we knew that we were on a time clock, so we had to go really fast because Peloton was going to get there too. And so we started in 2018 and just in time because we, you know, we caught the wave just before the pandemic. So yeah. really, really fortuitous time. That's wild. And so I think what you're saying with the party versus the connecting to the world, I think what you're referring to is the difference when you're on a hydro machine, you're really feeling like you're on the water. Like it's visually yeah. taking you into places in the world instead of kind of like in a studio or with club music and that type of thing. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, exactly. So I like SoulCycle. Like I think mm -hmm. it's awesome and I, I like that experience, but it's if you want to have a lifetime relationship, like you got to offer a little more than I think like the latest fad and that feeling of flow and synchronicity combined with the best exercise you can do for your body is I think like a really, really compelling thing. And it's something, especially because people experience the way we experience our phones and TikTok and Reels and Facebook and all of the fragmentation of our attention, the short pops of dopamine that people get from that. Like you need some relief. It's just too much. And Hydro is really designed to get you out of the water. So you might be in your living room, but give us 20 minutes and we will give you that experience of water and we will give you that experience of rhythm. And you will turn on all these muscles in your body that you don't know that you're turning on. Your psoas, all of the muscles that keep your spine upright in your body. And the act of turning those on, all of the chemicals, all of the hormones that get released from that, like that is a powerful a soothing experience on your brain. You really do feel like substantially better after a really good rowing workout than you do after other workouts because it does, it uses six out of seven major muscle groups and nothing else does that. There's nothing else like it. That's interesting. And so when, I mean, I'm just thinking, I'm like, wow, to start a rowing machine company, you, it's not like rowing machines didn't exist before, right? They were all over the gyms. Mm -hmm. When you kind of thought about building this machine, what were some of the things that you had to do to create something different? And I guess, what was that process in the product development phase that helped you create something unique? Yeah. Part of it was informed by all the coaching I'd done. So I knew a lot about the way hydrodynamics work and the way resistance works on oars and what it really feels like to be on the water. And the concept too is like an amazing machine. So that's like the OG rowing machine. And it was founded, it was created in the eighties. These two brothers were in Vermont. Everything was frozen. You're like, how do we stay in shape for the team, the national team, Peter and Dick Dreskacker. And so they put a bicycle wheel on a frame and they put some plastic cards on the bicycle wheel and they attached a handle to the chain. And that design really hasn't changed very much in 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and it works really well. It's like super solid. They changed the fan to a turbine. So it's a little bit quieter, but it's noisy. It's a little bit rough feeling. And 
it can't attach to the water because the water is incredibly smooth and really, really quiet. And the idea that you are out on the water, it's hard to convey with words, but we wanted to take that smoothness and that analog feeling and translate it to a machine. So we had to reimagine how people think of rowing machines really from the ground up. So instead of using a fan, we use an electromagnetic resistance system and we use a computer algorithm that really matches that feeling of the water. And it's the first thing everybody sits down on a rowing machine. That's the first thing they say, it's incredibly smooth. That's what we were going for. The other two things at the very same time that we started, that we launched our hardware development, we also launched software development, and we also launched our content creation. And on the content side, we had to reimagine how people experience rowing. So when you're rowing, you're not allowed to talk. Super, You're literally like, don't talk. You're told, don't talk. One person talks the coxswain. And if you're a rower, you're supposed to be so out of breath that you can't smile or talk like you're exhausted. So we had to really reimagine, put a camera on somebody's face and capture some of the joy and the feeling and the emotion. And so it's like rowing cubed or, or rowing squared, trying to capture that feeling and deliver it in two dimensions through a screen. And our customers report that they really, they do get that feeling, like they feel like they're out in the water. And we have an MPS of in the high 80s. So it seems to have worked to a degree, at least. Rowing without the sunburn. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so you've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Talk to me about fundraising. Was it challenging in the early days? I imagine this is you've had maybe a startup before. I don't know if you raised for your marketplace for PhD students back in the day, but this is kind of the first big company, right? Hardware, software that you're building. And you came from coaching. Did you get a lot of pushback from investors about going out and building this type of business? It was a magical time. I got a lot of no's. Similar to Foley, hundreds and hundreds of people said no. But we were lucky that Peloton was flying really, really high at that moment. And the opportunity was pre-COVID. So it was definitely challenging. But I had some friends in the rowing community who were uh, really supportive. And they got to know me over a period of years. So they were our initial funders. And so we were able to skip that like friends and family round and go right to, you know, we raised $3 million, like right off the bat to get the company going. And that allowed us to accelerate the program. And from there, I think it was the speed of execution that convinced El Catterton that they should invest. And so I had made a list of all the companies that could possibly invest in hydro and I visited most of them. And L. Catterton was number one on my list. They're, you know, an amazing, they have a great reputation, an amazing company, and they'd invested in Peloton. Mm-hmm. And they they know the space upside down and backwards. And so something that I didn't appreciate is that without a warm introduction, you don't deserve the money. Like if you if you can't get a warm intro, you yeah. actually don't have the skills to manage a company. And so you don't Do you agree with that? Money. Or is that a bunch of BS? No. So I'm Canadian. I don't know anybody. I did not right. go to an Ivy. And I was able to do it. I say that like advisedly, like cis white male. And I don't know what the experience is like as a female or as a non, non-white non founder, but I am to a degree an outsider. And I think it is a crucial skill. The test is the reason that I think investors feel that way is because the ability to connect with people and tell your story is so important. And if you can't do that, with a stranger, make them your friend, and then build a network from that, then you have no chance of building a company. Like there's no way. 
And that first skill, that first interpersonal skill is just so crucial. And the gender and racial bias that I think is a real barrier is like an extra hurdle there. And we have to be really thoughtful and like invest against bringing that down. But it doesn't diminish the importance of the ability to build relationships because ultimately you got to build a team. That ability to connect with people is your magic ticket to build a team. Otherwise, you can't do it. You know, there's just no business there. With fundraising, you just need so many more people to pull from because you're going to get so many notes, right? So it's kind of like you might have this network of people that you can ask for an intro for, but there's still this other few layers of the onion to even get to reach the, I think, the expansion that you need to reach to even be able to raise millions of dollars, right? I know for me, I'm like kind of a serial cold outreacher. Like I enjoy going <laughs> on LinkedIn and yeah. pinging people that know, but we might have 60 mutual friends in common on LinkedIn and I'll still yeah. want to be going cold. Because yeah. no I'm way. like, why bother someone for an intro if I can <laughs> yeah. just get it myself? Right. Yes. So if you can do it, I think that's amazing. My experience, so I tried cold with Catterton multiple times and I tried like medium warm and warm, but it wasn't until somebody they trusted were like, hey, you should talk to this person that I was able to get an in-person meeting. What round was that? Our series are a little bit oddly named. So we had series seed, series seed prime. And then we did Series A. So we'd raised $10 million by that point. Mm -hmm. And then Catterton led Series A with $25 million. I guess that makes sense, right? Because when you get to $10 million raised, you have plenty of investors by then to be pulling those, you know, and yeah. you want to have investors that put in the $10 million that can get you the extra 10 or $20 million you're going to raise after that and beyond. At least that's how I always thought about fundraising. Yeah. It was always like, okay, you're a seed investor. Great. You have lots of Series A friends, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. right. Exactly. It's part of your job. <laughs> yeah. It's part of the whole, like the whole point. One thing that I didn't appreciate until this stage of the company is you want to find investors who can be with you the whole way through. Otherwise, if something bad happens, they are going to get crammed down. And that is a very sad day for everybody. And we're super fortunate we haven't gone through that. But I've seen it happen to some of my friends in the industry. And it it is really tough. Like you just you just washed out like some major amounts of money from people who backed you early. And I imagine it is the worst feeling in the world. And what do you mean by that? Like they are get investors that do follow on funding or like how do you solve for that? Yeah. So it's making sure that I would say you want to be sure that the people who invest in your company will be able to continue to invest in your company, that they have the kind of resources and they're prepared. Like this isn't something that's not a one and done. Not that they will necessarily invest in every round, but that they will be able to support the company and, and protect their position through further investment. And I just didn't appreciate that dynamic in the marketplace until I got to here. I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen it happen in a couple of other companies where there was a down round. And if you couldn't afford to, you know, to re-up, then you're just out all those many years. And you're one of the first people to make it possible for the company to come to fruition. But that's not enough. You know, you really have to be able to follow all the way through. So is this more for like kind of security on a down round? Because it's obviously tougher to raise for that. Yeah, Or even exactly. like a bridge. So you're saying right. that this is more of a security for the entrepreneur to have these investors who will help kind of protect the business and their position in the down case scenario. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's great for the entrepreneur too. I think it's even more important for the investors. I talked to a lot of earlier stage people and I'm having these conversations now because there's going to be quite a bit of consolidation in our industry. And so people are coming to Hydro because they see that we're 
doing well and we're in the black for the first time and it's exciting. We're like, we're one of the top five companies. We think we're going to make it. And so I get a lot of calls from people and they start with what I need to do is make my investors whole. And they can't because it's just, you know, the dynamics aren't there and, and their investors can't afford to continue to invest. What point do you think a, an entrepreneur should start maybe taking on a banker to help them with the raise? That's a really good question. I don't know. I like bankers. They're like the most socially capable people I've ever met. You know, like they're photogenic and put together and in shape and super social and always having fun. And so, of course, you want to be around them. Like they're great when they think there's a job there where like they give you all their attention. And I don't think that they add a ton of value until you are really dealing with big numbers and a lot of people. And so, like pre IPO, you know, like I think that's you. Useful. But we went through a spec process and, and we've had all the IPO conversations. And that part, like it's very helpful to have some voices around the table to help guide the conversation in big deal merger acquisition talks. Like we've had some of those, and it, it's great to have a banker be the intermediary. You can get a lot more done. But until you're like through Series C or through Series D, I don't know that they add a lot of value. That's been my experience. I'm sure other people have had different experiences, and there are all different kinds of flavors of bankers. I like them, but the value add is pretty tenuous until you mm-hmm. get to the big time, I think. so. Yeah, it's definitely, I think, probably a personal decision. But I, I do think it kind of puts a, not a wedge, but it's certainly a barrier between the founder that the investor would be backing. And I know it's supposed to be like time efficient, helping the it's founder. It's not time efficient but... at all. It's total. It's So I've been through this yeah. like multiple times. Like we've worked with three different rounds of bankers through three different pretty lengthy and expensive processes. And the idea that it's time efficient is laughable. There was a meeting. I won't say which bank, but there were 14 bankers and my executive team, different sides of the table. And they passed out the book, even though nobody needs books anymore, but they passed out the deal book. And the younger person who I'm sure made the deal book until two in the morning, literally was sitting in the back corner and he fell asleep during the meeting. Oh it was, my gosh. <laughs> oh, he clearly put yeah. it together like right. last yeah, minute. <laughs> right. But all of those numbers, you know, who's generating those numbers? You are. You know, who's working on the deck and crystallizing the value props? You are. Like all that data, you're working with LEK, you're working with McKinsey. It is a major time investment and getting all those pieces pulled together. It's nice that somebody else is like actually printing the deck or whatever it is, but it's not time efficient (laughs) by any stretch. Yeah. It's also just, I know too much, I think about the early stage versus the growth and late stage type of businesses. And I just feel like, you know, there's no one else that can tell the story or share or sell the business, I think, better than the founder. I don't know. Just my personal opinion. (laughs) No, no. And my first advisor tells an inappropriate story about being able to fundraise for your company. And if you're in a relationship, would you outsource the physical part of the relationship to somebody else? Like you <laughs> That's just hilarious. If you cannot tell your story with heat and authenticity thousands mm-hmm. of times, go work for somebody else because that is what it takes. And there's there's just there's no way around it. And yeah. if like I wouldn't call it like passion, I would just I would say more endurance. Mm-hmm. But you really have to be able to bring the heat in every single meeting because you don't know which one is going to be the thread that holds. If you're not prepared for that, if you feel like it's stupid or you don't have time for it, then this is the wrong business for you. Yeah. What's been one of the best you know, situations you've had and one of the worst situations you've had when dealing with investors and fundraising? One of the best situations was 
true story. Our first investor and I were having lunch in New York City, and he said, okay, how much do you need? I'll put in $2 million. That's great. I said I needed 10, but there was no paper, no nothing. So I, I go away, and we're at a, an awards dinner a couple weeks later, and he leans over about halfway through dinner, and he says, I didn't put enough money in. You won't be able to get it started with $2 million. I'm going to put in three. Nice. <laughs> it's like, you're right. Thank you very, very much. And I'll go faster. I will go faster. So that's awesome. That, yeah, that was a really, really great story. And that he's, he's exceptional. You know, he's an exceptional human. I didn't bring it up. I didn't hint. I was just, I happened to be sitting beside him at dinner. You know, that was it. Oh, wow. The worst story, I really like my investors a lot. And I don't, the, the hardest story is like, I have one investor who frequently says, yes, sign me up for X but then they never follow through. They did the first time. I kind of stopped calling, you know, but it like couldn't stop keeping them up to date, but then they get mad about that. So it's like, they just have like a little bit of, maybe there are two or three people at the firm and one disagrees. So they kind of flake a lot Yeah, and it slows everything down a lot. It makes it harder to operate. The other thing that I have is in the final stage of papering a deal, we have one person who always, 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 finds two things to disagree with that are small things, but then we have to go back and change the paper for the whole deal. <laughs> it's like, and I appreciate it. Somebody's got to do that level of diligence. And actually, like I've grown to really like deeply respect that role. Like somebody, you know, in the investor group of the, you know, like in that side of the company has to read the fine print. And I've come to appreciate that it's not that he's disagreeing with those particular notes. He is proving to everybody that this is the right deal. And so I, I embrace it now, but it took a couple rounds of like, or can't we just get this done? Yep. Sometimes I had an investor once that said that he was in, he was like, yep, I'm in, I'm going to angel invest. And then I was like, okay, we're ready. And he's like, oh no, I didn't say I was going to invest. I said, I'd invest after everybody uh, else does. Like, I'm like, yes. what? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, those minor yep. details that you didn't say over drinks. Sure. <laughs> yeah, okay. Right. Sure, dude. Right. And then best case on my end, I remember I got a phone call from raising my seed round and these investors called and they were, I just left the meeting like the day before and he called, Put he's like, I'm putting everybody on speakerphone. We just wanted to let you know that and ask, you know, is there still room in the round for us? Because we'd really like to come in. And they end up being the lead in the round. And I was so excited that you know, I was waiting yeah. for that call. But it's so exciting when you're fundraising, you get so many no's. But when you get those yeses, you're just so happy. Yeah, isn't it great? When... It's the best feeling ever. Yeah. It is. It is. You're like, oh my gosh, they believe in me. They believe in this yeah. business, the team, all these things. It's It's rewarding. And so how big is your team now? And how do you view leadership? And how has your leadership changed over time? We had 200 people in order to get to profitability a lot faster. We changed our team. So now we have 95 people, 98, I think, as of today. And I don't know that I've changed a lot. I'd be curious to ask other people, you know, how much I've changed. I have tried to be a lot more clear and interfere a lot less, cause less chaos. I think part of CEO's job is like chaos monkey. That's not my line. It's my CEO's line. He's like, part of your job, like come up with crazy ideas, cause trouble. That's fine but make sure it's only 30%. You can't just cause chaos. You also have to do work. And I think overall, I've become an even stronger believer in investing in culture and just who you are. And we believe really strongly in like transparency and bringing your whole self to work and being as fair as possible with everybody. And I'm really, really proud of the fact that I'm still 
pretty good friends with most of the people that we've worked with over the years, including the people who are part of the RIF. And, you know, I think we've got just a very compelling and diverse group of people who are really committed to the mission because we, you know, we want to make the world a better place. And that mission has allowed us to bring people on who are way out of our price range ordinarily. And so, I mean, you've built a pretty significant size business. As the business continues to grow, do you see yourself staying in the CEO seat and growing with the company? Is that something that you want to continue doing? I hope I get the privilege. You know, I serve yeah. the pleasure of the board. And I think it's so much fun. That's this opportunity to create something and like play a part in people's life and imaginative life. It's so, so cool to have you know, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of members see that grow. Yeah. And I'm also really curious about being a public company CEO. I would, I would love that role. I think, you know, I don't know. I haven't done it before, but we walked up pretty close to the line. And I think there's a reason to do it for our company and that we want to have that counterpoint to the Peloton story. Like this, yeah. this is a hundred year brand and we are going to grow steadily over time and we're well-managed, we're profitable Deo Valente, we can avoid some of the enthusiasms and hubris that some of the other companies in our space have experienced through COVID and other various mishaps. Well, that sounds exhilarating to be a CEO of a publicly traded company. It does. It sounds terrifying, but also super exciting. I know, right? No, I know. And everybody says like, oh, you're going to regret it. And I'm sure they're right. No. But I'll, I'll have to go and find out. You have to find out. Like, that's something that, I mean, you got to go for it. I think you'd be a great, Great. you're already a great CEO, I can tell, but I think you'll be great on the public market too. I'm not sure. Why aren't you sure? Yeah, no, no. Hopefully I'll get a chance to find out. That's my goal. And we'll see if we get there. It's definitely fun trying. Yes. And so before we wrap up here, because I think we're at time, what's something that's been kind of surprising for you on this journey in building your business? The number of times that I have to tell the story, you know, really? a bit of advice. Yeah, I, I didn't, I did not appreciate that my main job actually is to tell the story and that I would have to find ways to connect with people like for years about the same thing that like comes from pretty deep inside my being and you got to share it. Like, and it's not a dip for Canadians anyway, it's not normal. <laughs> it's like not, a, it's not a normal activity. That was like a huge surprise. And I think when people ask me, like, what piece of advice would I give? It's that it's that thing. Like, you have to be able to tell that story thousands of times. Does it get boring? Are you sick of it? No, no, not yet. Maybe, <laughs> not maybe yet. next week. Not this week. Yeah. <laughs> <Next> week. <laughs> maybe tomorrow or yesterday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Every day is a choice. We'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Thank you so much for sharing so much advice. What can we see coming next for Hydro? Anything exciting coming towards the end of this year or next year? There's some very, very exciting things. We are excited about another modality with strength and continuing to develop our content and a few other surprises that I can't talk about yet. So yeah, it's going to be an exciting year. Awesome. Bruce, well, thank you so much for sharing your story on the show. Really appreciate it. Very inspiring. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.